Welcome to SeaWork Podcasts. This is session two of the Get Set for Workboat 2050 series three. This is a recording of the live session which took place at the Workboat Association AGM in Mottram, Cheshire on the 21st of November 2022. The recording is available as a podcast and video on Spotify to allow you to reference speakers' visual materials. For more information on the series, the speakers, and to sign up for forthcoming conferences, register or sign in at seawork.com. And welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome everybody here in the room and and welcome everybody online for for what is session two of Get Set for Workboat 2050 on behalf of the Commercial Maritime Network uh, in partnership with Maritime Journal and Seawork and in association with the Workboat Association. Uh, Today's event is supported by the Society of Marine Maritime Industries and the UK Harbour Masters Association. For this session, we welcome both the online audience and our live audience here today, uh, live from the Workboat Association AGM event. Um, and I'm not going to introduce uh, today's speakers because I'll hand that over to, uh, to today's moderator, uh, Andy Page. Um, but before we do, I just want to advise all the delegates that the session is being recorded. So anyone that, that asks any questions today will be recorded. And, and we do promote people to ask questions uh, if, on the chat if you're joining online. Um, and for those of you online, I just want to make you aware of some of the functions. So there is a public chat function. And this is available for you to use throughout the session, uh, which we welcome delegates to use and make any introductions or comments. However, please do not use this chat function to ask your questions. And that is because there's a specific questions and answers tab. So this will give you uh, the delegates online the opportunity to ask questions to the panel. And at the end of each session, uh, we'll have a little time for that. For those of you online, please type your questions here. Our moderator, Andy, will try and answer all of them as best he can or ask them to, to, the, uh, to the panel. Um, we can't always ask all questions, but what we'll try and do is collate as many of them together as we can. And if you don't get your questions answered today, please use the network that you gain online via meeting them electronically uh, to ask any questions direct in the future. Um, for those that are in the room, please put your hand up. We've got some strolling mics, uh, so we'll bring a mic over to you. And what we would do is, or what Andy would do is, do his best to... to do 50-50 from in the room and online as well. Um, for those of you in the live audience, just remember if we can just keep keep the noise down a little bit because it is recorded and being online. We understand phones need to be on for a lot of your jobs, but please put them either on vibrate or very, very quiet and, and just leave the room if you're going to take a phone call. All right. Well, You've all heard enough from me today and online you've heard from me many times before. So very quickly, I'm going to hand over to the moderator of the third series of Get Set for Workboat 2050. Thank you very much for, for all you do. And Andy Page from Chartwell Marine. Thank you very much, Kerry. And uh, thanks to those in the room. Um, and of course, thanks to those that have joined online. Um, we have an extended session today, so one and a half hours today, um, where uh, we're, we're, um, we're joined by an excellent uh, panel of speakers. Um, our first speaker today is uh, uh, Dawi uh, Vesselman. Um, she is Group Sustainability Coordinator for Darman. Um, Dawi has a background in strategic product development and communication, designed for innovation at Delft University and Technology. 
Um, today's focus for the presentation is how the marine industry can contribute to a circular economy, looking at vessel life cycle from design through to production and into operations. So, Dawi, hand over to you. Thank you. Can I use this clicker? Perfect. Uh, yeah, thank you for this uh, nice introduction. So, my name is David Wesselman, and I'm here together with Mike and um, Michelle. Where are you? Oh, over there. Um, yeah, and thank you for this opportunity to share a bit more on the circular economy because it's uh, like a topic that is very close to me. So uh, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, before I start, I actually uh, have a question for you. I've learned that you're very good in raising hands. So who of you is already know or know already what a circular economy is? Can you raise your hand if you are already familiar with the? Oh, that's quite okay. Okay, perfect. Um, just to get everybody on the same page, I will give you a, a short uh, high over explanation of what a circular economy is. So at this moment, uh, we live with uh, 8 billion people on this planet, uh, a very nice visual of our planet. Uh, and we all uh, consume, uh, eat, drink uh, resources and products from this planet. Um, and our, how do you say that? Uh, the people that live on this planet, the, the population is growing and growing. So that is quite a challenge uh, because we're already using 1.75 uh, Earths at this moment per year, and we only have one. So uh, there's a kind of a gap over there. Um, and there is someone, uh, Lady uh, Ellen MacArthur, I'm not sure if you know her. She's a British sailor. Uh, she already uh, found out that this, uh, this is kind of a problem like 10 years ago. She was sailing solo around the world and she really noticed that if you are sailing on a vessel, you only have the resources on that vessel. And it's kind of the same with our Earth. We have one, we can only use what is there. Um, so she started talking with a lot of experts about, okay, how can we tackle this problem? And she came up with this uh, model called the circular economy. And this is uh, the definition of a circular economy. So it's a model of production and consumption um, which involves sharing, leasing, reusing, repairing, uh, refurbishing and recycling uh, the existing materials and products as long as possible. Um, in this way, you actually um, extend the lifetime of the products uh, and therefore reduce the amount of uh, resources we use. So this is kind of theoretical. The next slide will also be a bit more theoretical and then I will go uh, shift to, okay, what does it mean for the maritime industry? This is the butterfly model, also uh, developed by, the Alan, uh, by Alan MacArthur. Um, so what you see is actual, actually our uh, value chain. So we start with the extraction of materials, uh, the part supply, uh, the product manufacturing, the distribution of the product to the end user, um, and then you have minimized landfill. That is actually the objective. So make sure we don't have waste. So how can you do that? By sharing the products that you have, uh, maintaining the products that you already use, uh, reuse and redistribute. So if you don't need it anymore, make someone else uh, using it. Um, and if you look at the products or components on a product, uh, make sure you can refurbish them or uh, remanufacture them. And last but not least is recycle the materials in the product. But what you actually like to do is keep the value of the product as high as possible. So keep it as close as possible to the user. 
So this is the theoretical framework of a circular economy. But what does it mean for the maritime industry? Um, I will tell it from a shipbuilding perspective. This is actually the ambition of Dame Shipyard. So actually what we try to do is to build our vessels cradle to cradle. We don't do it yet, not completely, but it's really, we are committed to this circular economy and the cradle to cradle uh, thinking. Uh, and also this emission free operation is of course very important and it's closely connected. Um, so what does it concrete mean? This is a product and here you see the full life cycle of a product. So we start with the new building, we have the operation and then we should not forget the end of life of a product. Um, and what are the three objectives? So reuse um, materials as much as possible so that we reduce the use of uh, raw materials, uh, design out waste and pollution. We try to recirculate materials and products as much as possible. Um, and mainly, what maybe is mostly important to keep the value of the products that we already have, um, yeah, keep them as high as possible. This is maybe still a bit theoretical for you, so I tried to get uh, to give you some examples. Also, again, from a shipbuilding perspective, but some concrete examples how we actually are already uh, tackling this whole life cycle. Uh, so we're already doing quite a good job, but I think we can improve a lot, but uh, uh, I will get to that. So first, in the, um, the design of the vessels, what we should do to really go to this circular economy is actually think about this full life cycle of the vessel. Um, so we don't know what alternative fuels will be used in the future. So really designing for this and reassembly, use standard, uh, standardized components, um, yeah, thinking about all these like design strategies in the design to make it future-proof is already uh, yeah is actually key uh, this is one example we are actually working on this is uh, a vision a 100 percent uh, circular crew cabin so what do we try to do we try to design it without waste in the design but also the production uh, we try to make it uh, personal as possible for the crew that is on board um, we try to use a standardized and modular uh, systems. Um, yeah, make sure it's like plug and play. And if you look at the materials, try to use bio-based materials instead of uh, materials that you cannot reuse again. Um, yeah, and upgrade where needed uh, so that we can actually use the different components of the uh, crew cabin as much as possible. So this is something we are working on from the design perspective. Uh, but it's not only about designing a vessel like more circular, it's also about how you try to produce or how you produce it. So this is one of our yards and what we actually try to do in every yard within the, within the company is to um, eliminate or <laughs> first start with reducing uh, the amount of water use, uh, the amount of uh, waste we produce on the yard, uh, the energy that we use, try to get as much, much as possible from renewable uh, resources. Uh, and hopefully in the end, we have no pollution, no waste and recirculate water as much as possible in the yard. But as said, we're not there yet. We're taking the first steps. Then the operation part of the, uh, of the life cycle, that is actually the most important part because the question here is, or, or the objective is keep products, products uh, in use as long as possible and 
try to keep them uh, up to upcoming regulations as much as possible so they stay relevant. So how can you do that? I think you will recognize uh, quite a lot of uh, what I will tell now, but it's all part of becoming more circular. Um, yeah, so in the operation, of course, when something breaks down, we have spare parts. We do services to actually um, check how the, the vessel is doing in operation. Uh, I think you all do this on your vessels. Uh, so this is very good and you're already adding to the circular economy. So keep doing that. Then if we go um, in the operational phase more to repair, maintenance and conversions, here you see a, a platform supply vessel that is being converted into a, a fish feed carrier. Um, and I really like this example that a vessel that is not used anymore is being rebuilt into another vessel. And this is quite unique, I think, for the maritime industry that we, we actually do this because we have such big assets and it's really valuable that we do this. And I think other industries uh, can also learn from this. Uh, and of course, we have the, the, yeah, if a vessel has its first lifetime, I think a lot of you may notice that, that we sell our vessels for second life or you already buy a second-hand uh, vessel. And I think that's yeah, something very nice for the, from the maritime industry that uh, that's already included in our uh, system. Then what else can you do in the operation? This is more about re refits and green refits. Um, so optimizing the design of the vessel is one thing, but for the existing vessels, there are also like upcoming regulations coming uh, and to make sure we can comply with them. There are already quite some measures that you can do to actually keep your vessel uh, um, yeah, up to speed, so to say. Um, so we call them decarbonization measures. Well, here you say, see a few examples of them, uh, but of course there are multiple more. Uh, and I think this is something very good for you also to remember that there are already some solutions within the market um, yeah, that you can apply in your vessels to actually decarbonize your vessel and to keep it relevant for the future. Then the end of life is also becoming more important, of course. This is the, the last phase of our vessel. So the decommissioning, um, it's not only about recycling, but it's also about the system and components that are on your vessel, if you can overhaul them uh, or even remanufacture them. So there are already a lot of examples of systems and components that are remanufactured, so really made as new. Um, and I think that's a very good point that we already do it, uh, but I believe we can maybe focus a bit more on this uh, in the future. Um, then the last part of the end of life is the real recycling. So what we do at that within DAM is now have a look, okay, what can we do with the vessel at the end of life? Can we recycle it? Uh, here you see a diagram. This is just an indication. It's not really based on uh, solid data yet. And this is really something we are working on uh, to make sure uh, next year we can actually give real data about, okay, what will happen at the end of life of a vessel? Because, yeah, <clears throat> you can design something, you can use it, but you also should do something responsible with it at the end of life. Um, this is a nice example of uh, something we do at the end of life. This is a small workboat that is sailing now in uh, the port of Dunkirk in France. Um, and they, they actually want to buy a new vessel. 
which is their their rights, uh, but they want to do something with their old vessels. So now we are going to recycle it and have a look if we can use the steel that is coming out of this vessel into a new design so that we actually close the loop. Um, it's a small vessel, it's a small start, but at least it's really something we really try to do and believe in. And then next to actually uh, focusing on this life cycle is also a lot about uh, different business models. So instead of selling vessels, had the chartering, the leasing of vessels. So keeping the ownership of the vessel and the responsibility of the full life cycle uh, is also something that we believe is uh, like an added value to really go towards that circular economy. So as said, closing the loop by looking at the full life cycle of a vessel, we're taking the first steps, but actually to really get to that circular economy in 2050, uh, we all have to work together. So from shipbuilders to class societies, the end users, NGOs, we all have to, to work on this to make sure we exchange knowledge, experience, solutions to get there. Um, and I hope after this presentation and uh, tonight we can have a discussion about how you can contribute together with us and others uh, to really uh, uh, accelerate the transition towards the circular economy. So, thank you. Sure. Firstly, thanks very much for the presentation. Fantastic. Uh, so, um, Darman is clearly uh, a very large organization, an international organization. Um, how do you intend on working with your worldwide network to share the information you're speaking of there and educate to, to the worldwide network of shipbuilders that you have? That's a very broad question. <laughs> so actually what we first try to do is get the knowledge level within the company at the right level so that everybody actually becomes this ambassador of a circular economy within the company. And then all those ambassadors can also spread their knowledge and share their uh, experience with their network in the full value chain or the full ecosystem, the maritime ecosystem. Uh, so we don't have a very structured approach yet, but I think this oil, uh, how do you say that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oil spill is not maybe the good. Maybe not oil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I guess there will be learnings on on your side as well because there'll be certain regions where um, perhaps a material type you can't get hold of it, or it's actually more sort of carbon cost to get that material from from somewhere else than using something local. Um, so I guess you're starting the the mission. Yeah. And, uh, and working through with, with participants. Yeah, and yeah, we don't have all the answers yet. So that's really uh, something we are working on to yeah. be able, on, based on data, uh, make right decisions. Yeah, and, and so from a, from a ship uh, building company's perspective, um, is, is there, do you have a department specifically focused on this now? We have a department for sustainability. Uh, so that's in a broader sense, so a sustainable organization, sustainable yard and sustainable design. But within every product group, we also have experts on alternative fuels. Uh, yeah, because we cannot have all the knowledge. There are a lot of people within a company that actually have the expertise and bring those people together is our main objective, actually. Yeah, yeah. So I think, as, um, as you say, this evening, this afternoon, I imagine there's quite a lot that could be shared for, for workboat operators. Um, in how they could implement similar policies and, um, and and methods of working to try and get to that circular position as you describe. Yeah, yeah, 
yeah, and we, we don't have all the answers. We cannot do it alone. We have to do it all together and we can also learn from all of you. So, uh, yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, thanks. Look forward to um, jo you joining the panel. Thank you. So, thank you. Great. So our second speaker today is Martin Jackson. Uh, Martin Jackson is the sales manager for PME Power Systems Group. He has over 20 years experience in supplying propulsion packages to all aspects of marine. Today, Martin is going to present on the advantages of repowering using a mi mixture of the latest innovations from MAN, including IMO tier three emission approved engines, uh, electric hybrid, the use of HVO and hydrogen dual fuels. So uh, over to you, Martin, thank you. So good afternoon, everybody that doesn't know me, I'm Martin Jackson, as it says there, sales manager for the PME group. So we're primarily the MAN high speed importers for the UK and the Isle of Ireland. Um, so what I've tried to do today is really to focus on some of the things that are available, some of the things that are not available, some of the things that are available for repower and obviously going into new designs. I think the first part is to uh, a bit of a reality check. And if I state the obvious, sometimes I apologise, but I think a lot of this is worth mentioning. So in, in all of our efforts to reduce emissions, make our vessels last longer, recycle them, reuse them, there's several areas we've got to look at. And the first one's infrastructure, whether that's electric, future fuels like hydrogen, Anything like that is one of the things that you need to do is look at, make sure that whatever you think you want, you can support from an operational point of view. Probably not as easy as it always looks, but it's worth looking at. And the, the, the three first things really is a bit of a reality check because as a manufacturer, MAN and probably all the other engine manufacturers have got a bit of a squeeze on R&D budget. So they have to be very, very careful where they do their development. And a lot of the ideas and suggestions that we come up with perhaps here in the UK, when we present them to MAN, they differ wildly from what they want in the US or they want in Australasia or they want in Asia. And of course, the, the an MAN with their R&D and their engine technology will always go with the volume markets. So I think what I'm saying here is, is that if you come up with some really, really good ideas, don't be disappointed if it don't go anywhere because it's very much a supply and demand market. Uh, and then the engine technology, we see lots of instances where end users, the people that want vessels operating in their area of expertise, are asking for things that sometimes, again, are not necessarily available or not immediately available. So I think the message I'm trying to give you is when you start to talk to engine people like myself or anybody else, provide as much information as you can so as we can hopefully find a compromise somewhere along the line. So compromises or what we've got available to us. The first one, and it's the flavour of the month at the moment, I'm tier 3. So we're using uh, SCR, Selective Catalytic Reduction Unit. Um, there's a good picture of one over on the back wall there. But basically, we're using AdBlue, 
urea, DEF, whatever else you want to call it, which is basically a high-intense water solution that's mixed in with the fuel. And what you'll get from that is you will get reduced NOx and SOx. It's as simple as that. Um, it's all very water-based. It's very friendly. It's environmentally friendly. Of course, what it doesn't do as a simple unit is affect your um, carbon particulates. There's a couple of options on that. One being what we call a DEF filter, which is available, which uh, adds another lump on the end of the installation to burn off and give you a carbon-free diesel output. Not to get too technical, but really very simple. So if you follow the arrow, arrows, you've got the exhaust inlet at the top. The AdBlue dosing unit is exactly what it says. It gets a squirt of AdBlue, urea, DEF, whatever you want to call it, as a mix in the mixing unit. And then one way or another, it goes through to the catalyst, where effectively it gets burnt off. And then coming out of your outlet, you get a Knox and Sox virtually free exhaust gas. It's as simple as that. Very, very similar to what a lot of us got on our car, on our vehicles. Uh, and it's a very effective way of giving you a emissions-free or near-to-emissions-free system. Just to give you an idea of what's available at the moment, I don't expect you to read that really, but what we've got available at the moment in the Tier 3 range takes us from about 250 horsepower up to about 2,000 horsepower and various stages in between. I think at the moment, MAN have probably got the most comprehensive power range of tier three engines available. And that's obviously for use in work boat, leisure boat, military, heavy duty, light duty across the range. Is a good topic for everybody, biofuels. Big, 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 big topic. Effectively, from where we stand as MAN, as long as it complies with the N590, then we're quite happy for it to be put in our engines. Can I use it in my existing engine? Yes, is the answer to that, providing you're prepared to take a few risks. So with uh, common rail engines, the latest type specification, providing it meets the N590 spec, it really, really isn't a problem. On older engines, uh, you will probably expect to see a few seals and things be attacked by HVOs, but providing you're prepared to do a little bit of repair along the way, then yes, you can use it in an old engine, specifically MAN. So a few of the areas that we see issues, fuel pumps and general seals and bearings. Which leads me nicely onto this one. And listening, I think I should have put another couple of slides in on this. So MAN work a uh, rebuild program, as do two or three of our service agents here in the UK. Um, so what we try and do is use as much of the donor engine as we possibly can. 
we try and use as many of the core products so you know starter motors alternators fuel pumps whatever we will try and just replace what is necessary rather than replacing the whole thing uh, to make life a little bit easier we actually put a two-year warranty on all of the genuine spare parts that are used just to give you some assurance that uh, we're putting our head and heart behind it. Just a couple of examples that where we've gone tier three. So the pilot boat, which is a series of boats for ABP, they're based on the straight six engine, their new builds. And the one on the right is the uh, one of the Uber tender clipper boats, which was a repower. We took that from tier two to tier three working very successfully on the Thames. Hybrid is another good topic. So MAN have produced a series or inline hybrid. Uh, the idea behind this is to keep the installation as compact and as short as possible because we all know that space is of a virtue in any of the boats that we're operating. It's based around a couple of options. On the far side there, the green piece in the middle is the electric motor. So they will be in 200 kilowatt segments. So if you want 400 kilowatts, it'll be two segments in time. If you want 600, it'll be three segments and so on. All based around the IMO tier three product. It's just a very brief example of what a twin operation will look like. Obviously, the one thing that we've not put in there are things like batteries, battery management systems. That very much is dependent upon application. As an alternative, we also do some work with a company called ESCO. But what I wanted to show you there was a parallel, uh, sorry, a parallel system rather than series in line. So this makes the installation a little bit shorter. But what it does do, it allows us to put the electric motor above typically the marine gear or the drive shaft just to give us a little bit more versatility. So there are options available. That system, incidentally, could be used on repowers on existing tonnage, on existing engines. <clears throat> this is fairly new. Um, so in conjunction with a UK-based design house and a wind farm boat operator, MIN have developed a hydrogen injection system. So it's not purely hydrogen, it's not purely diesel, it's a mixture of both. So effectively it is a hydrogen injected system. Um, it works very well, it provides some very good diesel fuel savings. And of course it also provides some very good environmental reactions as well. Uh, we're very pleased with it. I think I'm right in saying that the boat in operation is working very well. Um, and that simply is, is, is how it works. So we effectively just inject hydrogen into the fuel system. 
it gets mixed up and burns as normal. Uh, with the engines have been tested to the nth degree on test benches and really ran hard. And we are not seeing any premature degradation of the engines. We've seen them operating at full power. So it's a, it's a bit of a win-win. That is currently the boat that has got the hydrogen fitted to it. Uh, it's now becoming a production boat. That's fetched in those Wincat 48. Uh, and yeah, I think I mean, William will be able to tell better than I, but it's working very, very well. There were a couple of issues, obviously, initially with uh, being first of class, but it, yeah, it, it, it worked. It's working very well. Oops, sorry. What's under development? MIN is a big company and they uh, obviously are very heavily involved in the truck and bus market as well as industrial engines, as well as marine. So they obviously look at their whole range. So if you look on the truck and bus market, electrification is quite common. Fuel cell is quite common. And as is running other alternative fuels, things like methanol. So MAN are always looking at ways they can upscale things that they've already developed. And I was at the factory a couple of weeks ago and saw some fuel cells on test that have come off truck and bus that have been upsized a bit. They're probably a little way away from production yet, but it's all in the mix, ready to go. Electrification is exactly the same, which is back to with the MAN hybrid system. That's a kind of an adaption from truck and bus. Methanol and other alternative fuels, again, it's all in the mix, but back to one of my very early comments on R&D and development and market desires. It will just follow on. I think personally, the two, the electrification of the fuel cell will be the ones that we'll see more prominent in the years to come. Kind of, kind of it, really. Quick and brief. Thank you very much, Martin. Um, so you mentioned... Uh, where somebody might want to re refit or, or um, uh, re-energize their, their existing vessel. Um, and you said you need as much information as possible. Um, I don't know, that's, uh, <laughs> no, it's, that's the ideal. What, what, how would you normally go about it? Do you, would you normally go and do a survey kind of on board, work out what the operational profile is? You know, obviously, some, some of your customers have got big back offices with design teams and some, you know, it might be quite daunting the idea of changing to it. Yeah, we encourage people to talk to us. So, I mean, a lot of the areas that we look at is obviously what people are wanting to do with the boat, what they've already got, what they want to do with it, what room they've got available, how much money they've got. Uh, it, it, it's an occasion of things. And from a personal point of view, I'd rather people speak to us so as we can. A, give some advice, and B, point them in the right direction if we think we're looking in the wrong direction, and really to show what is available and what isn't. Okay, and this is back to the ideas. We, we get a lot of people come to us with some really, really good ideas. They're just simply not available. So rather than chasing rabbits down blind holes, we'd rather stop that and say, yeah, this is available or that's available. And I think that goes with most of the engine manufacturers, but application and space. 
is probably the two prime concerns at the moment. Mm. And you speak of space, I'm guessing, because there's not enough space generally. Basically, <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, 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 and that and that's just the nature of the components that have been. Yeah, and we were very lucky, particularly with our SCR option, in that it replaces a couple of components. It's probably one of the most compact ones out there, and it's just helping the people find a hole to put it in and how it works in their vessels. And we're doing a lot of repowers, taking Tier 2 to Tier 3 and finding holes in existing vessels. Sorry, and holes is probably the wrong term to use. Room, room in the engine room or the machinery space to put them. Yeah, I mean, if you do find the hole, as long as you plug it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah that's the boat builder's job. <laughs> um, and, and obviously, the previous presentation, um, we were kind of talking about life cycle. Um, uh, and you mentioned the re reman program, the remanufacturer. Is that something you actively recommend? That Absolutely. Keep the engines running? Absolutely. So MAN have done two things. Firstly, they've we've introduced this uh, reman system and this two-year warranty business on spare parts, and that's to encourage people to give us back the core so that we can rebuild it rather than manufacturing it from fresh. From fresh. Um, so that kind of is trying to get hold of the whole life cycle a little bit, um, and it works. And so that two-year warranty gives people the, the refreshing side of it. And what was the other part of the question? Just really the, the life cycle, and we'll come on oh, some sorry, more in that. In the, in so the, the other thing we've looked at as well is MAN now have extended their major service interval. So typically now we've gone from a 12,000-hour major rebuild to an 18,000 major rebuild. So that's a testimony to the reliability of the product. And the other thing, of course, is that it extends that major rebuild putting stuff in, recycling it out a little bit further. And that, in some instances, can add sort of two, three years' life to the machinery and vessels. Very good. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Martin. We'll pick up more on that uh, in, the, uh, in the panel. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. So um, a little bit of a change in uh, subject. Um, our next speaker comes from the finance world. Um, so uh, Andy Blundell, our third speaker, um, comes from a different angle. Uh, he leads uh, aviation and marine finance team uh, activities across UK, Ireland, the Channel Islands, and the Isle of Man. Andy has 35 years experience in finance and banking and has a wealth of knowledge of financing solutions for corporate and personal clients. This covers uh, a lot of marine activities, including commercial, leisure, and super yacht. And, uh, and also aviation. Uh, Andy today is going to give us guidance on how a lender considers a funding application, um, what information businesses should provide, and uh, why there are more options available to vessel owners than just high street banks. So hand over to Andy. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. And uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, first of all, big thank you to Kerry and the association for the opportunity to present to you all today. Uh, look forward to meeting you all in person after, after the conference. Um, what I want to go through today is um, a bit of background about Close because we are, we're a big bank, but we're not the best known, perhaps. Um, talk to you about our own ESG journey at Close Brothers, how we finance vessels um, and what that means for you. Uh, some questions we have, I think it's apparent from the previous uh, presentations already that 
that there's no one answer and, and we're still working towards a goal. Um, and, and then I'll happily answer some questions at the end. Um, as uh, Andy mentioned before, I, I lead the aviation and marine finance team at Close Brothers. I am joined by my colleague, James Crew, my marine sales director. James, if you want to stand up and, and say hi. Um, uh, we both look forward to uh, answering any questions you may have afterwards. So who is Close Brothers? Well, you'll be pleased to know that James and I aren't brothers. There are more than two of us. Okay, we are actually a bank of around 4,000 people. Uh, we've been um, trading for more than 150 years. I think this is our 154th. We're a FTSE 250 listed bank. We are regulated by both the FCA and the PRA, which is the Prudential Regulation Authority. Um, but we're not on the high street. So we're not perhaps the most, uh, the most obvious banking brand in the UK. However, we do all of this. So obviously, I think the most important bit is centre of the top line, aviation and marine finance, which is my my passion. Uh, however, if you are financing trucks, if you are financing wind farms, if you are financing beer barrels, whether it's property development, property refinancing, whether it's investment management or trading securities, Close Brothers do it. The only thing you can't get from us is a bank account. But everything else, whether it's lending or looking after your money, there is probably someone. So why are we here? What do we do? Well, we're a bank. We lend and invest money, but 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 we have a purpose behind it. And and our purpose, uh, if I can just read this, is our purpose is to help the people and businesses of Britain to thrive over the long term. So we are here for SMEs, for individuals, and for large corporates. Um, we are a UK-focused bank, and uh, and we are here really to service the uh, that 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 market. Um, Primarily, um, interestingly, we've now got a fourth bit. This used to be a three a three pronged slide. There's now four. So our, our responsibility, which is really what feeds into this conference now, um, we're here to address the social, economic, and environmental challenges facing our businesses, our employees, um, and clients now and in the future. So that really ties in with what uh, this part of the conference is all about today. How how we are looking towards the future. Now, this is a really boring slide, which I'm not going to go through in detail, you'll be pleased to know. But um, I've lifted this from our annual report and accounts, which was published last month. Um, and the, the most important bit, I think there's two bits. There's the light blue bit at the top. Uh, so we as a bank have now joined the Net Zero Banking Alliance, which means that we have made commitment to the regulators, our shareholders and stakeholders, uh, that we are fully aligned in our strategy and the future to the goals of 2050 in terms of net zero. So we we have very much um, aligned our strategy with, um, with with 2050 and the goals. And then the brown box below that on the right, we're helping to finance the transition. So if we're making that commitment at the top, it means you've really got to start lending up money to help our clients, you guys, to do that. Um, however, we, we know that it's not that easy. We know it's not an on and off switch. We can't just flick from, from fossil fuels to new technology. Uh, we know that it's a journey and there will be several years, possibly decades, while that transition goes through. So we are very much here to support you in, in traditional power systems, powertrains, vessels, um, whilst that transition goes through. Um, and we will finance the new solutions as and when they arrive as well. We're here to learn with you. As I said before, it's clear that, that we haven't got all the answers. Um, we're still trying to work out some of the questions. You know, so there is still a lot of unknowns in there as well. But um, all I can say is that Close has committed to 
joining you all on that journey and getting there with you, okay? So what do we do? What do we actually do? Um, we've been lending on marine assets for 25 years. We've been lending on the aviation side for more than 40. Um, we're a lender, not a lessor, which means that you own the boat and we take a mortgage over it. Um, fairly traditional marine finance offering. Uh, for those of you not uh, used to dealing with finance companies, perhaps too much, um, think of it of, uh, like buying a house rather than financing a car. So it's a loan and mortgage over the vessel. We happily finance new vessels. Uh, we can finance pre-owned vessels and we also finance refurbishment projects. So if you own a vessel that needs upcycling, upgrading, refurbishing, repurposing, then we can do that. And James and I have worked on some interesting projects over the last few years to uh, make some of those come to fruition. Um, our usual maximum asset age on a vessel is 30 years at maturity of the loan. So no more than 30 years old once you finish paying for it. That is flexible depending on what it is, what you're using it for. So that's not an absolute red line for you. UK flag is normal, as you'd expect. We normally lend over one to seven years. Um, we do offer a final blue payment if that's what you want, um, and, and we'll be happy with that as well, which basically means you can pay off some of the capital at the end so you're not paying it all throughout the, the term of the loan. That might be of interest if you've got a, a contract that, that you have a, um, a specific need of a vessel for and you need to match the cash flow for that. We can lend in pounds, we can lend in euros. Clearly, we know that lots of vessels, including from our friends at Darman here, they are bought, bought sold and traded in euros. Uh, the there can quite often be a, a risk in terms of currency at the end of the um, ownership period for you if you're lending in one currency and borrowing in another. So we're, we're quite happy to have that conversation with you. And we don't need a wider banking relationship. As I said before, um, we're not a clearer. We are not a high street bank. Um, so we're quite happy to deal with you if you don't currently use Close Brothers in any other capacity. Um, what we are looking at doing, which is a new thing for us, which um, I'm sure you know lots about, is that the new UK Shipbuilding Guarantee Scheme will be launching uh, potentially next month, but certainly next year. Uh, we are already heavily engaged with the Department of um, BEIS at the government. We are signing up to that. We are not signed up yet, um, but once that does happen and we are a fully signed up member, that will give us um, a lot more flexibility, um, another string to our bow and be able to service your requirements in the future. Um, from what we understand at the moment, and again, we haven't seen the full scheme launch yet, that that will cover both new build construction in the UK as well as refurbishment projects. Um, and I think the department are looking at a, a modest entry level, so it's not just multi-million pound projects. So that we, we look forward to seeing that with interest when it happens. So I'm now gonna to revert to type. We're a bank. We're not your clearing bank, so we will have lots of questions, but I just wanted to spend a couple of minutes just going through what what we would expect to see because I'm conscious that especially for the SMEs among among you and amongst our customers, talking to the bank about finance isn't something that you do every 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 day, every month, every year, even. You know, so it it can it can seem quite daunting, but it's all for a good reason, and it's probably stuff that you have anyway. But I just wanted to explain why we need it. Um, Basically, we need to understand why you're doing it. So rather than just filling out an application form and sending us some accounts, we really need to understand what it's going to do for you um, as a business. Um, you need to explain the project for us, why you want to do it, what's the drivers, is there a contract behind it, 
what extra work you're going to get from it. Um, basically, how are you going to generate the cash that will that will pay the loan back? Um, clearly, you know it's going to work because otherwise you wouldn't be doing it. But we need to understand that as a bank. Again, we're not your clearing bank. We haven't got your bank statements, which is the first sort of step to do that. So be prepared to um, provide lots of information. Um, accounts obviously you will need to do them anyway management accounts if you've got them we know lots of companies don't provide them on a regular basis so we can work you with that but we, we will always ask for them if you've got them and we need to look forward project costings projections for the future let us know how you've justified you can pay it back and at that point then your application will be received favorably not just by us but other lenders that may be out there um on the other side security so if we go back to previous slides we're a lender um, and we take a mortgage over a vessel. We need a mortgage over a complete vessel, complete boat. Um, it's very difficult to do construction finance when there's only half a boat there and the ownership of that is probably the yard. So um, mortgage over a complete vessel is what we're looking for. If you've got something unencumbered and you are doing a, a project which involves other works, we can look at your unencumbered fleet as well, take, take security over that. That's something we do quite regularly. We'll always get evaluation and survey done. Um, if you are buying a vessel, um, we are normally quite happy to use a surveyor that you'd be using anyway. So we're not looking to double up on costs. We realize there are cost limitations in all projects that you do. Um, key for us, um, not only it's how can you justify that you can afford the facility, it's what's the vessel worth now? And if you're doing a refurb, how much is the project costing and what's it worth at the end? So quick project basis to understand that the value on day one is less than what it's going to be worth and as long as we can understand that get the right security we're very happy to work with you to watch to work towards the end goal there may be stage payments clear um you're not going to pay for everything up front and it's unlikely that the yard will say it's all right you can pay us at the end um so we we need to understand how we can step in when you need the money who's paying what and when um Guarantees are a thing, so we may need corporate or personal guarantees. They're not an absolute prerequisite, but probably 70% of our facilities have them. So that will be a conversation to, to expect. Um, finally, I'll go back to it, shipbuilding guarantee scheme. Uh, that will give us as a lender uh, a guarantee from the government. Um, so any, any facilities protected by that will have some good coverage for us as well as a lender. Clearly that will make things like um, construction finance more unsecured finance in terms of refurbishments, um, a lot easier to underwrite from a lending perspective. Still yet to see in detail whether you apply under the scheme and then come to us or whether it's the other way around. But as soon as that's clarified, I'm sure we'll, all, uh, we'll be able to let you know via the association. Finally, and this picture is, that is delivered because the future isn't clear. Um, these are some of the questions that we've got. There will be others. As I said before, we don't know all the questions. Um, so how will hybrid and future propulsion systems work? What will win out? Will there be one winner or will two or three be right for the right mission, the right purpose? And importantly for us as a lender, uh, will, will they be retraded? Because it's being expensive is one thing, but we need to know that you can sell it at the end once you finish with it as well. Or upcycle or cradle to cradle, as you said earlier. Um, what are the residual value trends? Not only for what are the new technology vessels worth, what does it do to the values of the existing fleet? Because if, if all the contract demands are now for hybrid, what does that mean for traditional systems? You know, so we need to keep an eye on that, as I'm sure you are as well. Finally, um, who's going to pay for it? 
real day rates or contract values increase to support the higher capital costs. This new tech is very expensive. So how is the industry going to be able to pay for the difference? Because I think that's an important thing. It's very important to us as a lender. It's crucial for you guys. So we just need to keep, we are very keen to understand that as well. So in summary, we're here for the journey. The bank signed up to 2050 and all the all the requirements that that brings. Uh, and we look forward to working with you in the industry to make that happen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Andy. Um, probably just just time for one question, and you've got a lot of it. To be fair, um, uh, it, as a bank, uh, obviously you're 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 lending and you're you're manage, evaluating and managing risk. Mm. Um, there are a number of technologies that are being talked about every day. Um, how are the bank trying to um, stay in touch? I guess attending things like this, but how you know how are you staying? How are you trying to stay in touch? And what um, what would help um, balance risk? You know, is it with the regulator kind of um, uh, providing more guidance? Would that help in evaluating the the, the risk profile of a of a project? Or you know, how can um, how can we make this simpler for, for you sure. to, to lend on? Um, which regulator are we talking about? I, I guess it would be class societies, the yeah. flag states, etc. Absolutely. So that 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 would help. Once we know that that certain new technologies have got the right classification, clearly that's a it's not a tick in the box, but I'll call it that. You know, but it's something which we would expect to see for commercial operation anyway. Um, but the fact that it's been accepted, it's gone through all the testing. Um, then obviously that's yeah that's very very good for us. Um, from a a banking regulator perspective, if I can turn it on that way as well, we are not yet at the stage where we have targets set by the FCA or other regulators or government about the amount of real lending that we do. Um, we're not signed up to things like Poseidon, which is which some of the other banks have signed up for larger um, vessel construction contracts. I'd be naive to think if something like that wasn't coming in the future, but currently that's not something that we need to do. And that was the first part to your question, which I've forgotten. Um, I, I guess on that risk evaluation part, um, what what would help you lend on? Would it be that the your your client uh, receives a, a, a contract from a, from let's say an you know an operation requirement, and it says this bank must be hybrid? Then there's more of a more more certainty. Bank, banks love seven year contracts. Yeah, we're not naive enough to think that there are lots of them out there. You know, so it's it goes back to the fundamentals. If if you, if as an operator you've got good history of lots of three month rolling contracts with the same operator, that really helps. You know, so you are you are a trusted partner of the people that you serve as an industry. That's really really useful. Um, we do have to have a bit of leap of faith ourselves. You know, if we if we're saying to our stakeholders and shareholders in the industry that we've signed up to these protocols. And 2050, we need to start lending against it. You know, so there, there is a definitely an element of we 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 will have to do this. And the with the more and more experience we have um, and knowledge throughout the industry, then we'll be able to get there. All James does is marine finance. All I do is aviation and marine finance. You know, so as a team, and there's more than two of us. You know, the, we're a team of ten. Um, we embed ourselves in the industries and just get the, as, as much knowledge as we can. And the way Cloaks works, close works is that we are trusted as the experts in a certain sector and we then feed that into our risk teams. Yeah. So it's um, you're not just dealing with generalists that are doing property one day, marine finance the next. You know? So there is there, uh, there is some expertise, but you know we, we need to learn with you. Yep. We look forward to doing that. Great. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure there'll be more questions. Thank you. Thank you.
Great, thank you. So um, our final speaker today is Ben Craig. Uh, ben is a zero emissions technical specialist at the Maritime Coast Guard Agency. Ben is leading a technology matrix modeling exercise comparing a range of future low emission uh, power technologies for different vessel types. Uh, ben is currently finishing a PhD in molecular modeling of advanced battery materials at the University of Southampton. Um, previously, uh, uh, Ben was um, the lead, lead uh, gas turbine propulsion systems modeler at DTSL, which is part of the MOD. Uh, ben is today going to advise us on the MCA's current stance on future fuels, considering biofuels, battery, hydrogen, methanol, and ammonia. Um, and it's worth noting that uh, the model uh, Ben is presenting today is based on crew transfer vessels uh, from offshore wind. So thank you very much, Ben. Right, good afternoon. Oh, thanks very much uh, for having me, Kerry. Um, and great talk to everyone. So yeah, so I'm with the Maritime Decarbonisation Technology Strategy Team at the MCA, and I'm gonna be talking about the circular energy economy. Now, to be precise, when I talk about the energy, uh, circular energy economy, I'm talking about uh, moving beyond uh, th unsustainable throughput of fossil fuels. So there's uh, obviously a lot of really good transition technologies going on at the moment. And just for the sake of this presentation, we're taking almost one step beyond that to the point where we can really have a circular economy of energy. And uh, for everyone in the room that isn't a, a crew transfer vessel owner, operator or designer, uh, we're coming to you too. <laughs> uh, with the crew transfer vessels is what we've been able to do so far and hopefully there's some really useful stuff on uh, the fuels uh, context. So our team's a non-regulatory function um, aiming to accelerate decarbonisation while maximising the economic benefits of the transition or you could say trying to minimize the economic pain. Uh, so we exist to coordinate between uh, all of the players in the industry and try and provide kind of a central point that actually has sort of the uh, space to think about strategy without simultaneously having to set regulation. And uh, the way we aim to do this is by doing a mixture of wide engagement and research and also detailed modeling. So the UK has got the largest operating offshore wind capacity in Europe, and we're predicted to retain this leading position. Uh, with our capacity predicted to at least triple between 2020 and 2030, which is really quite amazing. Crew transfer vessels are carrying out over 90% of the service trips of the operational wind farms. And we think that's contributing somewhere between 10 and 20% of the uh, life cycle carbon emissions for those wind farms, making this a really good target for de further decarbonisation of this uh, renewable resource. They do have some challenges, of course. They're very short, uh, 24 meters to fit within the workboat code, and they also travel at high speed. That's a combination that's always going to give you really high fuel burn. They're small with um, small fuel capacity, therefore limited fuel capacity, and they're using high-speed engines, which are always a little bit less efficient than their larger cousins. Finally, they've got long operating hours. Uh, they may only be out for a day at a time, but they don't have a chance to refuel from land uh, during that time frame. So we wanted to uh, assess the possible ways forward. And so the model we did is uh, called the technology matrix uh, assesses a range of power system configurations. So basically, you know, like diesel mechanical, diesel electric, so on, against the range of future fuels. Now we did a lot of industrial engagement uh, leading into this exercise. Uh, so uh, bang up to date assumptions for all the technologies and the numbers you're seeing are kind of like the fully installed uh, in for like things like compressed hydrogen. We're taking into account the lost volume around the tank, you know, to that level of detail. And there's every component on board except for things such as cabling or piping, you know, so power electronics, uh, et cetera, all on there. Uh, so you've got your baseline diesel mechanical uh, in the top left corner there, so which is generalized to IC mechanical. 
uh, internal combustion engine mechanical. And then that's against methanol with 5% um, pilot fuel. Ammonia, also 5% pilot fuel. Compressed hydrogen with 25% pilot fuel. And that's the 350 bar, which we think is going to be a more common uh, standard across the industry uh, because of the you know more than double compression costs and capex costs associated with going to 700. Uh, you finally got liquid hydrogen as well. Uh, also, uh, and that's also at 25% pilot fuel. Uh, so that really, at the moment, that's a dual fuel assumption fitting in with the talk from MAN. Um, we are in the future looking at SI engines too, burning 100% hydrogen. Those engines are maybe a little bit larger, um, but we're not sure about that yet. So uh, watch this space. We, no, we didn't look at um, diesel electric uh, because there aren't really any diesel electric CTVs. Um, the parallel hybrid, we did look at that uh, hybrid configuration with the battery on the grid and shaft motor generator on each shaft. So you're keeping the, um, the efficiency of having main engines. There's a battery electric configuration, and then there's also uh, fuel cells running off compressed and liquid hydrogen. So uh, proton exchange membrane fuel cells, they're the ones that everyone's talking about, uh, the transport ones. They are, uh, they've got the better resilience and the better power density compared to other types, and they're really mature today. Um, we didn't look at solid oxide fuel cells at this point. Uh, it's a very efficient technology, a uh, bit more fuel flexibility, uh, but they really don't have the power density for such a small vessel with high power needs. So we've left them off this, this particular time. Um, so the crew transfer vessel duty cycle we put together to design these uh, routes again, uh, very kindly contributed to by Andy Page. Um, and we feel it's a representative of, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a good, it's, a good, it's a good starting point. Um, so it's got 20 minutes each end in transit and then critically a 37.5 nautical mile um, transit um, phase at 25 knots out to the wind farm, which we believe puts most of the wind farms in the UK broadly within range. Um, there's some transit between towers, manoeuvre, uh, and then there's a sea state pushing on at transit power, uh, a low sea state pushing on, uh, which is basically to take advantage of a hybrid system if you've got one. You wouldn't need the engines to do that. Uh, finally, these vessels spend eight hours a day potentially idling, uh, not allowed to drop anchor in case they foul the undersea cables, and that gets through a lot of fuel and also engine life. So the first set of results, um, mass versus volume for all the technology routes. So we've got the mass in tons along the bottom and the volume in uh, meters cubed up the side. Uh, the dotted line uh, coming down uh, the middle is the maximum feasible mass for the power and propulsion system which is set to about four tons uh, greater than the um, IC mechanical MGO baseline. Um, that's actually thought to be something of a conservative assumption. You might even be able to design the vessel with a bit of excess weight over that. Uh, over to the left, you'll see the hybrid, um, sorry, the hydrogen configuration, CH2 and LH2, um, parallel hybrid and conventional. Uh, the reason they're so light is because um, hydrogen is such a light fuel and we've constrained the fuel store here to um, 16 meters cubed, even with the tanks. It's still a lightweight fuel and there's lost space around the tank as well. Um, you see the arrow there. So obviously you want to be down the bottom left if you can. But these are not range equivalent. We'll come to that. Um, the only thing that hasn't been sized to 16 meters cubed fuel store is the battery electric configuration. We've been a bit nicer to the battery electric. We've sized it to the mass limit for the vessel. Um, similar as you'd see with electric cars, you'd have a greater mass of batteries on there than you would originally have for the fuel. Uh, you'll also see the battery electric configuration comes out at approximately the same volume as the MGO parallel hybrid. Uh, that's reassuring because there are parallel hybrid um, configurations sailing around today uh, and they work really well. You'll see over to the top right that um, fuel cells haven't really made it into the selection, uh, into, into the race uh, on this vessel type. That is purely down to power density. Uh, these vessels really do need a lot of power out of a small space. 
Uh, but you're going to see a lot of them uh, in larger vessels. Uh, they offer, you know, 50% efficiency against 35% you get for these kind of engines. Um, and uh, and also they don't emit anything. Um, no NOx, no SOx, uh, apart from just water. So can these alternative technologies actually go the distance? Well, the short answer is mixed. Um, at the bottom, you've got the diesel mechanical. It can do four days of duty cycle. If you switch to the um, hydro-treated vegetable oil, the HVO drop-in biodiesel, um, then you can still do the four days. Uh, going to methanol uh, with 5% pilot fuel, you can almost do two days. If you stuck a parallel hybrid on there, you'd be over two. Ammonia, liquid hydrogen, compressed hydrogen, battery electric, all fall short and get progressively worse. So it looks like methanol and HVO are the only two workable options. However, a problem with closing the carbon loop uh, in the circular economy. The only sustainable carbon is in the atmosphere. Uh, methanol currently is drawing on fossil fuels and uh, HVO uh, we need to uh, draw from the atmosphere. So, and we can't use second life carbon from industry because that's not going to count towards net zero. Two obvious ways to get it, direct air capture. Now people are working on this technology because it really is a very key part of decarbonizing and hitting the global targets by 2050. Um, unfortunately, trying to dioxide out the atmosphere is like looking for a needle in the haystack. It's at one part in 2000, which means this technology is currently prohibitively expensive. The next way is biogenic sources. So these are plants and trees that have already sucked the uh, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere for us and then entered some kind of existing supply chain. So there's kind of like a forestry uh, residues and wood waste from timber operations, um, straw croppings from agriculture, uh, food waste, human waste, and also the biological component of rubbish. The problem is that none of these are growth sources. And after 2030, availability of all of these is set to either maintain or decrease. And that's from a report that DFT commissioned in uh, 2017. We're actively working on this problem. We've got a report uh, that we've commissioned, that DFT have commissioned next year, that really should nail down a bit further exactly how much um, biogenic fuel we're expecting um, for the maritime sector. To give a broader picture, measured in energy content, current world oil production is about five times larger than world agricultural production, which means that we could wipe out the entire world's food supply and only solve 20% of our energy problem. And we can't just cut down more trees to grow more biofuels because A, that's not a particularly carbon friendly thing to do. And secondly, the global spare biocapacity per person is expected to reduce from 1.2 global hectares per person in 1970 to only 0.3 hectares per person in 2052. And that's assuming no serious uptake of biofuel. And these quotes are from um, 2052, a global forecast for the next 40 years. And Jorgen Randers was one of the original climate scientists in the 1970s that put climate change on the map and he's been prominent um, ever since. There is going to be some biofuel, but you can expect really stiff competition from aviation and the military, both of whom are used to pay more for fuel and um, also have a harder decarbonisation challenge, to be frank. Which brings us back to solar-derived energy, so renewable electricity and hydrogen and ammonia that can be generated from that. Every hour, more energy from the sun hits the earth than we use in a year. So it's abundant. We just haven't been very good at using it. Obviously, we're getting better. And crew transfer vessels obviously have unique access to that because they're servicing wind farms. But obviously, you can't use these sources without on-site charging or refueling. This is a concept that many people are already familiar with. Uh, fortunately, it's been pushed forward at the moment by a, a group of people, and I'm sure there'll be more players in the field very shortly. Um, the government's been investing in this consortium um, under the Clean Maritime Demonstration Competition um, and actually expecting to commercialise it at the back end of 2023. And it's also a UK technology. Now, Andy mentioned my background in aviation. I just find, uh, just find it uh, fun to point out 
that 2023 would be the 100th anniversary of air-to-air -air refueling. And I feel like if we can handle that, then I'm sure we can get our heads around this. It still leaves you the problem of getting to the wind farm in the first place. You might have noticed the battery electric and the compressed hydrogen were rather far away from completing a duty cycle. And indeed, at 25 knots, they can't actually get to the first turbine on this duty cycle. Remembering again that 37.5 nautical miles is at the upper end of, um, it is a, a long duty cycle. Um, and you also notice here that compressed hydrogen isn't doing any better than battery electric. I'll bring you back to the thing I mentioned before, which was that we were very nice to battery electric. We brought the mass right up to the limit. We didn't do that with compressed hydrogen. Less sure about how you do those design trades on board. Um, so it probably, compressed hydrogen probably would give you a bit more than shown here. Of course, because CTVs operate so fast up the, up the speed drag curve, uh, well beyond the efficient plateau um, align, uh, there's a lot to be gained just by dropping that back down to the plateau. And if you go to 22 knots, then you can actually do this duty cycle. Of course, there's other ways to extend the range of crew transfer vessels. You could reduce drag by potentially foiling. Again, it's a concept that's been um, that's been explored uh, extensively at the moment and maybe may well, may well be suitable for smaller vessels, particularly those that are carrying people rather than cargo. Um, but if you really want to go further, you're going to need a bigger boat. You're going to have to build longer vessels, which is going to move you back down the drag curve at the same speed, obviously, and also give you better volume to power ratio for onboard energy storage. So, yeah, so that's all very well for a few years' time when we, you know, really have to decarbonize, you may be thinking. But actually, it may be, uh, may be some benefit in being an early adopter. And uh, while the MCA is not in a position to give, you know, actual blow-by-blow -blow advice, maybe these numbers can just be a little bit indicative. Uh, last month, um, the uh, MGO bunker cost in Aberdeen, or this month, sorry, um, works out at a fuel energy cost of 8 pence per kilowatt hour. The average efficiency of this crew tra transfer vessel in turning that fuel energy into end-use energy is 31.3%, um, which means you're then paying 25 pence a kilowatt hour. To charge an electric vessel using a wholesale price of electricity, and that's assuming you can negotiate that as a CTV operator because you're working on the grid utility, um, you're going to pay 23 pence a kilowatt hour, and that vessel um, will transfer that energy with 96% efficiency plus a small extra loss for the charging, um, giving you also 25% kilowatt per kilowatt hour. So no actual detriment there. Obviously, I haven't talked about CapEx at all. Um, however, the really interesting thing is that in uh, last year, the UK threw away 6% of its offshore jet, uh, wind capacity uh, due to curtailment, which is what happens when the UK grid is so overloaded uh, with renewable energy, you actually have to switch off the turbines. That was enough to power all the homes in Wales and represented a loss. Um, However, considering that the wind farm owners and operators and the CTV charterers are often one and the same, uh, it was a really good reason to believe that they get this energy um, at, let's say, a discount rate, if not for free. That means that you don't have to pay to get to the turbine. Um, and then actually, you could be making a really significant um, saving on your OPEX uh, from that point on throughout the day. So leaving you with that thought, um, I'd like to finish by saying that the MCA is here to help. Uh, Workboat 3 covers the use of batteries. I'm already aware it's going to be a subject of much conversation over the rest of the day. Um, it's out for public consultation. Any feedback, very welcome. And uh, yeah, really would encourage you to engage with Rob, who's in the audience today. Um, and uh, I've also showed a picture of Esme, who's the uh, Future Fuels Policy Lead on that side. MGN664 was published earlier this year to cover approval of innovative technologies. And to service those needs, we have John Booth and Andrew Clark. Also, John Booth was our QA for the modeling, so very grateful to him for that. 
Uh, their sole purpose in the MCA is to help get um, people through the exemption and exemption route and get low um, emissions technologies on the water. Um, we approved Hydrocat 48 last year. So that's a hydrogen dual fuel workboat. So that's really helped to de-risk um, compressed hydrogen. And also uh, we're planning on hosting an event in 2023 dedicated to workshop solutions uh, for the sector. And in the audience today as well is Saskia Daggett, who's our um, relationship director and head of um, stakeholder engagement, um, who'll be uh, looking to engage as many people as possible and uh, to gauge the interest and support for an event like that, where we can really workshop a lot of these solutions in much more detail. So uh, thank you very much. Um, thank, uh, looking forward to meeting everyone later in the bar. And uh, yeah, thank you. Can I, um, can I invite our uh, panel members to go and sit up there on those stools, please? Um, so we're going to have a, a, a short panel discussion. Um, and uh, if possible, I welcome the audience to, uh, to raise questions. I think, Sally, we've got microphones. Harvey's got the microphone. Um, any questions from the audience that we would like to raise? If not, I can get the ball rolling. There's one from Mike. Just at the front here, please. Interesting coming from the MTA. Thank you. The on the last presentation, the concept of um, going to sea and and heading out when you're actually planning on arriving at your destination effectively with no fuel um, poses it would be an interesting if you were to suggest that to the MCA, they probably wouldn't uh, advise it as a recommended, you know, good seamanship. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a very good point. And um, so the calculations do involve a, a reserve on the battery. So they're very conservative calculations of, you know, the, to make the battery last 10 years and to provide some some reserve. And again, that 37.5 nautical miles was really, it's just a line in the sand. <laughs> so a lot of the time you'll be designing to have, I think you're designed to have more a lot more reserve than that. Um, and yes, the whole concept, you're right, a big change away from day-to-day uh, -day operations. I guess the, the, uh, the big question is, uh, are there potential gains there ready to, you know, do they potentially offset it? And is that worth trying to work through those struggles? Yeah, I think, um, Ben, obviously your future technology, so you're trying to simulate what things might look like. How do you actually work with policymakers and, and surveyors once you've, you know, done some work? So with yeah with surveyors it's um it's a case of at the moment of internal briefings um and and my colleagues uh, Jonathan Simpson works more closely with surveyors and has keep has kept a very close eye on the results and has uh, found lots of value in, in 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 the conversations that he's had with them I've had a little bit less oversight of that if I'm totally honest and he actually deals more with the policy side of that as well so so I but the results already have fed into um, CMDC3, uh, CMDC2, and the way those uh, competitions have been put together and which technologies uh, have looked more sensible as a result. And uh, there's other aspects around there as well, um, feeding into computations and, and so on. Excellent. Any more questions in the room? Yeah, uh, James. One for Dewey, please. On the it's being changed in France using the and use the same steel, etc. Where does it go in cost compared with a, a brand new one off the Darman production line? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. <laughs> um, 
to be honest, I cannot give an answer to that uh, question at this moment. I'll come back to that uh, later, uh, maybe. But uh, at this moment, we don't answer yet because we're still figuring out how we're actually going to reuse the steel from that vessel in a new design. Uh, that is the first step. And then the cost is the next step. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's quite interesting, really, that you raised that, James, because I was kind of going to ask you and Andy. Um, if I work Darman, in a bank, I'm going to want to know that. Exactly. Yeah. If, if Darman do find out the answer to that question, um, is there sort of clever funding packages that you think in the future could be derived which yeah, do enable for, you know, complete use of old material to build a new vessel? You know, is there, is there something feasible you think there that, that could could generate a funding package that would help with life cycle, um, circular economy? Uh, well, as I said in the presentation, we've been going for 154 years. And most of those probably haven't been the first adopter of anything really fundamentally whizzy. Um, I think that there will be a an element of circular economy ESG responsibilities coming into any funding proposal that we will have to do in the future. As I said, it's not there now. Um, what interesting is okay the that um might be more expensive because you're using materials that you've already got um but is that outweighed because the resale value of the old legacy vessel if i can call it that is way lower than it would be than if you're just putting it back into the into the system so i think from a lender's perspective how we lend money probably won't change radically are we able to lend under certain conditions and understanding the whole cost-benefit analysis? That will be very important to us to understand how it works. Presumably, since there's some level of existing asset to an extent that perhaps has a value, there's a level of security that could be considered on a, you know, for energizing an old boat. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's possible. Again, um, you then get into some interesting legal debates about who actually owns what bit of what vessel at what point, because there's as a lender, that's very, very important to us. Um, again, if there's, if we're then taking an angle on the construction project as a whole with the shipyard as a co-party to any financing we do, that's another, you know, that's another consideration. But that that does get very expensive very quickly with with three sets of lawyers, and so it's it's not a small job, I would suggest. Kerry, is there anything that the association might be able to do to sort of help? members you know especially on the smaller side where members want to try and decarbonize they can't necessarily afford lots of lawyers to go through who owns what and all you know is there anything the association can do to help with that i think we can definitely uh, facilitate sharing of, of knowledge and best practice um there are a number of projects which seem to be taking steps in the right direction that i know of now um and it, and it seems a bit sad to say we'll rely on someone else to go first um but in some cases, that is what's necessary. Um, I would say as an association, of course, we're going to, to promote people do it the correct way. But at the same time, we want to learn from their experience. So I think what I see is there are some um, partly governmented funded, partly private funded um, systems like Ben was explaining earlier um, that are going to come online very soon. I think the important thing for us as an association is once they've actually happened, to get those people here sitting on this uh, bench, uh, telling everybody what they've learned from that and uh, some of the things that worked well, some of the things that didn't. Um, and I think that way we can we can help, you know, maybe, and maybe that leads on to us making some, some white papers or written good practice, et cetera. But first of all, 
I do see it as a case of us learning from those early adopters. If I can add one thing on that as well. Yeah, if you are putting your existing vessel through the circular economy to make a new vessel, it's unlikely to be your only vessel. So you will have other assets within your corporate umbrella or within your business that we may be able to look at. So there's there's more than one way of funding something. Um, you know, so we're very happy to look at other options, not just the vessel in question. Thank you. Any more questions from the floor? Many. Hi, um, it's Jason Schofield from Green Marine. Question for uh, uh, Ben and Martin, <clears throat> and it's on the hydrogen, uh, the hydrogen use of hydrogen as a fuel. And I know um, you're developing technologies, um, uh, Martin, and, so, and introduced that into WinCat 48. But one of our issues is um, is engineering competency. And have you thought about how engineers will have to be trained? To handle hydrogen because as we know it depends how it's handled how it's stored it can be quite dangerous and and also um you know <clears throat> it's a job to get good engineers now as we know and good good crew that uh, is this going to introduce a problem to the industry you know if we've got two little dangerous goods as well in the engine room because AEC one and two just wouldn't cut it the answer to that is yes it will create problems. We're seeing the same with uh, hybrid electrification where the, the engineers need different qualifications. If I'm honest, as an engine supplier, we leave that very much down to the operator. But from our own engineer's perspective, yes, we have to put them through a variety of training for accreditation. So, yeah, we have thought of it. It is an issue and it is going to continue to be an issue until we get a better engineering base put together. Yeah, and from our point of view as well, in terms of trying to work out the way forward for these technologies, uh, yeah, absolutely acknowledge the issues um, there around the increased complexity of the systems. Uh, and as we go forward, it's something we're trying to solve by bringing the you know the right people into the conversation um, uh, from the start, really. So uh, next week, we're holding an efficiency measures conference in Portsmouth, uh, and we've got a human element um, speaker there to sort of bring the conversation there. And uh, for this future event I'm talking about, we're re um, really going to put some emphasis on bringing in the appropriate people to try and understand and then work out how we move forward with that side of things. Thank you very much. Next question. Another hand up. Hi. Hi, it's Bert from uh, Akmarine. Uh, in addition, maybe to Jason's question uh, for, I think for Ben and maybe for yourself, uh, Andy, I was wondering um, how far are we uh, regulation-wise for storing and handling uh, H2? Um, so, well, I think the, the the straightforward answer to that is that we've got hydrocap uh, on the water. So uh, we, we've been able to solve that problem from a regulatory standpoint. Um, I'm actually not the expert on how on how on that process. I wasn't actually involved, but uh, if if you're interested, uh, I can certainly point you in the direction of the people that were, and um, I'm sure they'd be happy to talk to you about it. Uh, in terms as a watch, yeah, we certainly don't have anything approaching uh, prescriptive regulations for that yet. Um, but in the same vein as the uh, battery and hybrid annex, I know that the uh, Rob's team are, are looking forward towards uh, towards future use of those alternative fuels. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but typically you're looking at sort of a risk-based analysis approach um, when it comes to new technologies. And 
um, trying to make the risk as low as reasonably practicable um, and documenting that and, and, uh, and that's the method you're adopting until you've got sufficient uh, documentary evidence to create policy. Uh, yeah, that's the idealized version. <laughs> okay, uh, next question from the floor. Yes, Michael from Diamond Shipyards. A uh, question for uh, Andrew from uh, Close Brothers. Uh, recently ran into a project uh, where a financer uh, rejected uh, to finance a vessel because of the area of operation. How do you look see this? Um, lots of have have internal policies about where they are happy for their vessels to operate. Um, that might be because there is no experience of um, of operating in certain areas. It might be uh, something which is an internal policy because of how the bank perceives its own risk. It could be um, it could be because they don't know the customer or the sector well enough to understand where um, where and how boats operate. So, you know, as a UK bank, every every lender every lender would love the boat just to be going in the North Sea and back. We know that's not reality. Um, so it's it's really understanding why why the boat is going where it is. Um, and in the um, in the event that there was a distress situation and the bank had to step in from being lender to effectively being a mortgagee in position, could it get a security back? So that's the underlying point as to why banks get nervous. Different banks have different appetite. And 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 just to add to that, from our own perspective, um, we we are very um, comfortable with with UK Mediterranean Baltic waters. Um, anything that goes east of Suez is a problem for us. You know, that's which we wouldn't do. As an example. Thank you very much. I think there's a question at the back. Thank you. Um, this is Mehmet from Volvo Penta UK. Uh, my question to Devi. Uh, I just wondered the uh, is it bolts, uh, fiberglass bolts, uh, how you bring them to recycling uh, environment and is there any structured plan for them and shipyards? Another tough question. <laughs> um, to be honest, for composite, we are exploring different ways for recycling. We didn't choose one direction yet at this moment, but we're looking at it. Um, so I cannot give you this satisfying answer that we have the holy grail of uh, uh, recycled composites. Uh, but we're now looking in those different directions. Uh, but I can definitely let you know if we have decided the right strategy. Yeah, thank you. I guess, I guess there's um, there's an opportunity to um, to not just uh, recycle composite boats, but we can also look to reuse them, re-energize them. Is that an appropriate sort of situation for Darman as well? Looking to upcycle the vessel, use it again. Sorry, again. What was the question? Um, just saying that composite boats, in their own right, can carry their structure for a number of years. So I guess there's an opportunity to upcycle them whilst we learn whether we can recycle them. Yeah, no, I fully agree. I think composites are quite a big challenge in recycling at this moment. We hope it, in the future it will be, but uh, until then, actually, uh, keep using them would be the best solution. So keeping the value up as high as possible. So hopefully Mehmet from Volvo and uh, Martin from MAN can give us new, better, lighter, yes. uh, yeah. less fuel-burning <clears throat> engines, and we'll just do that for a bit and then recycle them later. Yeah. May, I, may I also comment on this? Uh, Michael from Daman, <laughs> um, <clears throat> you see the same problem with uh, the turbine blades. 
um, the Hornsruff project has been uh, upgraded. They've got new turbines, uh, bigger turbines, where the old turbine blades are now being stored in a uh, basically a landfill. Um, so the, you have the same problem over there. Uh, we consider the wind energy as green. So, um, yeah, same problem there. And I guess um, Ben and, and Andrew, perhaps the same in aviation as well. Things I was going to ask is, you know, are you seeing um, packages in aviation for lighter fuel burning planes, et cetera, and, and, and anything from your side um, that could be uh, in, interesting for the floor? I, I can start. So um, thinking of more about engine financing. Um, so engine financing is a very um, busy and very active sector. Uh, in in the aviation world, the big difference is that on aircraft engines are on the outside, so they're a lot easier to identify and move around. Whereas in ships, obviously they you know they're not they're inside a vessel, so there is a a much more um, difficult job of of looking at engines entirely, if you like. But certainly putting new engines into a vessel is something which we would happily look at. Going back to my point in the presentation, that we need a mortgage over a whole something, you know, so it would have to become part of the whole vessel. We can finance the engines and. Somebody else was financing the, the hull, if you like, um, in terms of... But you can with a plane, you say? A, it's a more established market because they, the engines are demountable and you can put them on something else quite easily. Okay. Because perhaps, surely there's a way we could do that with batteries or fuel cells. Potentially, yep. I think that, that would obviously help generally mm. with some of these projects. Absolutely. I think it's all about portability. Yeah. So once, once the engine is in a vessel, is it practical? rather than legally or engineering possible to actually do it. I think that's part of the question. Okay. Anything to add, Ben? From Yeah, not so much from the aviation side, but maybe on the battery side in terms of uh, batteries. You know, It's kind of a given figure that the battery pack now will last um, 10 years with a fairly, you know, being used every day with a carefully designed due to plenty of um, padding at either side of the charge profile. Um, however, what people are increasingly finding is at the end of that period, only a few of the sellers have really um, have been exhausted um, and they were the ones that were slightly weaker in the first place and we haven't worked out how to get rid of that variation in manufacturing yet um, so actually there's quite a lot of scope for uh, re-energizing batteries at what would appear to be the end of their life but actually most of the cells can carry on and be used in a new battery very much um, that actually brings us to a close uh, unless there's any major questions that need to be asked now um, thank you very much to our panel. Um, it's uh, loads of challenging uh, questions and I'm sure it will go on uh, throughout this evening. Um, thank you very much to our, our audience uh, here at, um, at the Workboat Association AGM and thank you very much to um, everybody online. Um, a recording of this event will be made available to all registered attendees over the coming days and uh, Get Set for 2050 will return in the new year um, with session three planned for February. Um, we look forward to seeing everybody then. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a SeaWork podcast. For more podcasts, to sign up for conferences and join SeaWork Connect, the commercial marine business online, go to seawork.com.